Hey, welcome everyone to this exponential webinar. Uh, it's a webinar where we get to, along with Stephen Pike, interview leaders that are surfing this next wave. And so this will also not only be a webinar that you get to listen into, we want your questions and your dialogue. And as many of you know, and some of you are gonna to learn today, you just hit that chat button down below on this Zoom call and join the conversation and we'll take your questions as we go forward. As you already know, many of you, this particular webinar uh, is focused and centered on a, a really inspiring book that I've enjoyed and it's The Next Wave uh, book and also The Next Wave community that has emerged from this book. Stephen Pike takes us through some important pivots and shifts that are taking place in the North American church and gives us a glimpse as to what the next waves look like. So I recommend the book, I've read it. I'm a part of the Next Wave community. There will be links available to both the book and the Next Wave community in the notes and in this podcast. And in this episode, we are discussing one of the shifts, which is recalibrating the timeline, your timeline from launch in launching from actually the traditional launch to something that I'm interested in, uh, to an emerging, from launching to emerging. And I find that phrase fascinating. And today's guest, Cole Yoakum, is living out this particular shift. Stephen Pike, would you like to introduce us to our guest today? Yeah, absolutely, Dan. Thank you. And, uh, you know, to sort of set the table a little bit, just, just to further expound on what we mean by launching to emerging in the book Next Wave, we talk about it. one of the things that's happened is um, the, the conventional way of thinking about starting a church, the, the word that was used to describe sort of the penultimate moment in the startup of the church was the launch and everything was built around the launch day, and uh, and and every the 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 people leading the church plant were they picked a date in the future sometimes kind of randomly and said okay on this date we're gonna we're gonna bring everybody together for the first time and it's gonna be a wonderful spectacular event and and uh, so everything sort of gets really focused laser focused on that one day that one event that actually moment because there's a time it's like 11 a.m or 10 a.m or whatever time it is uh, on a certain day and so you know and they usually pick that out you know sometimes it's a year in advance but more often it's like six maybe even three months in advance so all of a sudden all this pressure starts to pressure on them and um you know sometimes people get a little nervous and they're realizing oh we don't have enough momentum etc and so th they say hey they, they contact their sending organizations hey we're thinking about pushing back our launch event and the the conventional wisdom has been oh that's not a good idea you don't want to drag it out too long because you're going to lose momentum and, and so people feel this pressure to just go for it and go for it you know sometimes that works out really really well um, so I'm not saying that's necessarily a horrible, bad thing. Sometimes it, it is the right thing to do, but unfortunately, and increasingly that has become, um, uh, just, just, just a bad practice an unhelpful practice because, um, it, it, it just artificially creates this, this, uh, situation where everything gets in money and all kinds of stuff poured into that. So that's the, that's the launch. And that's been the prevailing idea. Uh, what we mean by emerging is we've noticed that as we join Jesus in his effort to build his church, um, it seems like from, uh, from the vantage point of the conventional way of starting the church, that Jesus kind of slows us down a little bit. Um, I, I've heard it said that the speed of God is three miles an hour. It's, it's, the, it's the pace of walking along with somebody else. And that's um, the average pace of a human uh, step. And, and God tends to move in ways that we don't always see and understand. And, and so what happens is when people commit to emerging, they, they do everything they can to align themselves with the pace and what is God, what's God already doing in this community? What's God doing in me? And what does that look like? And so what happens is when churches, when church leaders and church planners and starters begin to think more about emerging uh, and aligning themselves with what God is doing, then, then it does, it, 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 it doesn't necessarily always end in a big bang that, that begins the existence of the church, but the church emerges out of the community. Mm -hmm. And our guest today 
uh, Cole Yoakum, I think his story, the story of Micah 6 community, is a perfect illustration of what it looks like for a church to emerge. So I, I, I think the best way to hear, to learn about this, I don't want to tell you what the punchline is yet. It's such a great punchline. The, the end of the story is amazing, and, it, and it's still going on. It's still unfolding. And in many ways, it's, it's uh, you know, it's still kind of messy. <laughs> but the startup doesn't sound, it, it's, it's like the anti-startup. It, it's, it's the anti-launch. It's like Cole did everything wrong. They should not exist today. So let's dive into it. We got, we got to hear the Cole Yoakum story. So Cole, man, welcome. And here's what I want to do. I just want to start back with Cole Yoakum, whatever it was, a decade ago, uh, 15 years ago, college kid, um, just in your dorm, you, instead of starting Facebook, you decided to do something else. Um, let's let's start back then and just let the story unfold because there's there's all kinds of little twists and turns along the way. So Cole, welcome. Thanks for being with us today. And just tell us about where, you know, take us back to your, your dorm room and your, you guys are sitting around talking and what came out of that? Sure. Uh, so first of all, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Uh, excited uh, to, to talk about what we do and, and kind of, you know, give you a snapshot of what it looks like right now. Uh, so I grew up in a tiny town in Arkansas, uh, you know, 3000 people. Uh, when I decided to go to Bible college, which was 20 miles down the road, a little old lady at church, like grabbed my hand and, and you know, this town had 17,000 people. And she says, do not lose yourself in that big city. <laughs> uh, and so this is, you know, where I came from. I went to uh, Bible college, did not have a like a strong faith family background. It just kind of wasn't a thing that we really did. Uh, got a little, you know, got into Jesus uh, in high school, uh, my senior year of high school. I was supposed to go to film school. Uh, my goal was to go to film school, make movies, do lots of drugs, tell good stories. Um, and then, you know, uh, I had a youth minister who said, you know, Hey, like can't really love Jesus and do lots of drugs, uh, which I would argue with now, but, uh, you know, as a, as an 18 year old, I was like, Oh, okay, I guess I'll be a youth minister. Uh, so I went to Bible college to do that, uh, got there and was, I don't know, I, I, I really stuck out sort of in the little cohort of, of Bible majors that we had. And, you know, we had a class and you know, our, our professor says, you know, your first book of the Bible, your first test of your college career is going to be really easy. It's just all the books of the Bible in order. And I was like, there's like a hundred of those. Um, and so, uh, and everyone else in my class laughed. And so, you know, I went up to my professor because I was like, I kind of just found out about Jesus. Um, and everyone laughed at your, your first test. And I'm a little freaked out by it. And he, he, his line was, he says, there's always one of you. Uh, and which I guess there's always some new, new, new Christian who decided they wanted to go to college for Bible. And so, uh, he says, I'll let you take it as many times as you want until you get a grade that you're satisfied with. Mm. I was like, that sounds great. Uh, and so I keep taking it, you know, we covered the first five in class pretty, pretty quickly. Uh, so you got all the Moses books Then you have the only sentence, which is Joshua judges Ruth. Uh, and then you've got the ones and twos in reverse alphabetical order, same with King's Chronicles. Uh, and that's about as far as I got. And I just kept bombing this test over and over again until I heard, I was in the hallway and the most Bible college thing ever happened as I was walking through my dorm and I hear somebody singing Genesis, Exodus, and I was like, hold on, there's a song. And it was this white dude. And I said, excuse me, skinny white dude, uh, there's a song. And he says, yeah, we all learned it when we were kids. And I said, not all of us. And so me and my best friend, Dylan, uh, who runs the church plant at Micah 6 now, became best friends sitting across the room from each other in our dorm as he's teaching me the books of the Bible song. Uh, and so he and I become friends. Uh, I get roped into a situation where I have a friend, Ross, who's been doing jail ministry. And he finds out that I'm from this small town just down the street. And he says, I had somebody in my cell group who uh, just got out of jail and went back to his house in BB. Can you take me to Apple Street? And growing up in BB, the Apple Street was the only street that had anybody on it who was a shade of brown, uh, very, very vanilla background. And so uh, we get there and, and he, you know, he just walks up to a house and he knocks on the door and says, hi, my name's Ross. I'm looking for a guy named Big Big T. He, uh, you know, recently was selling methamphetamines and was in jail. And I was like, this is how I'm going to die. 
uh, and I'm going to die back in my hometown, which is like the furthest place uh, from where I want to die. And so, you know, as we are, uh, you know, doing this, meeting people on the street, he's dragging me into jail ministry stuff. And then he says, oh, hey, I'm uh, leaving uh, for a semester. I need you to take over my cell group in jail. And I was like, that sounds terrifying. Uh, so I'm going to bring my best friend Dylan along with me. And as we started doing more and more uh, jail ministry, started getting to know a lot of these guys, a lot of them were coming from one neighborhood about a mile away from where we were going to school. And so we just said, like, let's just go hang out there. And so we went to that neighborhood. We played soccer with kids one afternoon. We had a lot of fun. And we said, let's just keep doing that. And so every Tuesday, we would go and play soccer with kids in the neighborhood. Eventually, the moms start going, where are my kids going every week? Come out, get to know them. We start planning block events. We start planning, uh, you know, whenever, oh, no one trick-or-treats in this neighborhood. It's not safe. We said, okay, great. So we brought all of our friends, opened their trunks. We did a big trunk-or-treat in the neighborhood. And then, uh, you know, we helped a lot of families apply for their habitat homes. And we, uh, my favorite is that on Easter, we needed something to do uh, for Easter because kind of a big deal. Uh, But we were all broke college kids. And so, you know, we didn't know what we were doing, but we all had friends who were having a competition amongst themselves to see who could get away the longest with raising barnyard animals in their dorm rooms. Uh, and so we snuck all of these animals out of the dorm. So chickens and goats and ducks and rabbits. And so we snuck them all out to the neighborhood and had a petting zoo. There was a church that had had an Easter egg hunt on Saturday and threw all their leftover eggs away. We dumpster dove for those, filled them up with candy and we had a petting zoo and an Easter egg hunt for our neighborhood. And as we were coming up on graduation, you know, the idea of ministry in an office in khakis with office hours sounded horrible. Um, but we really loved what we were doing in the neighborhood. And so we just said, let's just go and do this for real. Let's move in, be neighbors in a neighborhood that needs good neighbors and do this. And so we started talking. People start talking. I'm incredibly impatient. Uh, and so eventually I just said, I'm done talking. I'm moving to Detroit. It's 2011. No one had anything good to say about Detroit. Uh, it's everything that didn't fit into my car. I just, you know, sold, drove up here, rented an attic uh, in uh, a house near downtown and just started hanging out with groups that were not changing the world or changing the region, but just making life easier for the people within a couple blocks of where they were. And so that's how I got to Detroit. Uh, eventually, I started getting pulled into a number of things and initiatives and cool things going on at Pontiac, Michigan, which is about uh, 10 miles northwest. Uh, it's a northwest suburb. looks a lot like the city of Detroit. And so um, that's how I ended up in Pontiac, Michigan. I love how you just skipped over. You, you talked about sneaking the barnyard animals out of the dorms, but mm-hmm. you didn't talk about sneaking them into the dorms. <laughs> we did have to get them back. That was part of the arrangement was that we would not get our friends busted because this competition was very important to them. So that was like a major operation, man. Well done. Well played. Oh, that's so good. So now that whole little segment that you just shared right there, how, how much time passed uh, in that story? So I went to college in 2005, ended up in Pontiac, Michigan in 2012. Okay. So that's seven years, right? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like, uh, you know, you got this idea and all of a sudden you're in Detroit um, and then Pontiac uh, in, in a month or six months or a year. It's, it took seven years for that to play out. But those, I, I know the rest of your story and I know that all that stuff was very formative that, you know, you were learning, there were things that you were gaining a knowledge, understanding of. Um, and so, again, it's just a great illustration, I think. I just think, I, I hope people that are uh, watching and thinking about this just realize and recognize that um, the time frame that God has isn't always what we would like it to be. So, all right. So, we're at, at 2012. Um, you've kind of mentioned that Pontiac is sort of a small version of Detroit. You know, it's, it's um, the demographics, the uh, socioeconomic uh, realities, uh, just all of those things are, um, you know, basically reflected in a smaller version. So here's the thing. Now you, you move into Pontiac. What are you moving there to do? I mean, were you even thinking about planting a church or what, what, was, what was motivating you guys when you moved there? Because it was not just you, right? It was 
tell us about that whole thing. So you, you're, you're in Detroit, you're kind of working, you, you just moved there and you were helping out all these organizations, but now you're going to go to Pontiac and you're going to do what, what were you thinking when you moved there? Sure. So uh, we knew that we didn't know uh, so <laughs> that, you know, folks sometimes move with an idea or like, this is what we're going to do. Blah, blah, blah. And we, we were looking for a neighborhood that had high crime, high foreclosure, high unemployment. Like that was, those were the three criteria. Uh, and, but those, that's very, you know, which, you know, our mothers loved, um, but that is, that's super high level. Uh, we knew that, you know, we needed to find where we were going to go move in. And who's we, by the way, who's we. Uh, so, uh, so when I told my friends, I said, I'm moving to Detroit, they said, okay, great. You first. Uh, and so I moved here by myself. Uh, and so, uh, took a year while, you know, in Detroit, sort of getting to know the area, getting to know organizations, getting pulled into some things in Pontiac, which was a lot of fun. Um, just sort of letting God drop people in my path and sort of use them as signposts for places that might be interesting to go. Uh, so started looking at places in Pontiac, uh, found a real estate agent that was willing to show me houses in Pontiac. Most of them would say, wouldn't you rather live in like Troy or in Rochester, Robert Hills? Uh, and so, but found one that was willing to show me houses in Pontiac. Uh, we looked at a couple, uh, ultimately came up on a, a duplex. Uh, so side-by-side -side duplex. So the whole building was for sale. Um, six bedrooms, 2,200 square feet. Like it's a good size house. Uh, we're looking at it. And I, I always say, if you're a real estate agent in Pontiac, Michigan in 2012, your job is you're polishing turds. Uh, you are, you know, you're, this hole could be a very attractive skylight. Uh, you know, <laughs> this house comes with cats. I hope you like cats. Uh, we do know that it is livable because it looks like someone might be living here. Um, and so this, you know, Yasmin, I, you know, hats off to her because I know she, her commission was like $12. Uh, on the house, but we walked in and somebody walked into the house behind us as we were looking at it, uh, which is a little unnerving. And uh, he said, Hey, like, if you're thinking about buying this house, you need to know that uh, somebody got raped on this porch two weeks ago. And Yasmin was like, There goes my sale. And my little girlfriend at the time was like, Get me out of here. And I said, Perfect. Like, this is. Yeah, if we needed a, a clearer sign, like, I don't know that we're going to get it. Like, this is the kind of neighborhood that needs good neighbors. And so uh, we bought that house. The price was right. We bought it. So six bedrooms, huge house. You know, it was $9,000. Uh, and so we uh, moved in and uh, I called my friends. I said, okay, great. I bought a house. Come and do it. Uh, and I had two friends from that original group that was in that neighborhood doing work with us back in college who moved up immediately uh, Dylan said, okay, give, you know, he was a youth minister at a church up in Canada. He said, give me a year so that I can finish well here and then I'll be there. Uh, and so, uh, we moved in, we, we said, we're not doing anything. For the first year we said, we're just hanging out. We're going to ask questions. We're going to get to know the neighborhood. Uh, opportunity presented itself pretty quickly because, uh, I realized our house didn't have any plumbing. Uh, it had sat empty for a couple of years and, uh, people had come in and ripped all the plumbing out and took it and scrapped it for probably 70 bucks. And so uh, God's providence also really looked out for us in that uh, we are less than a mile and a half from a Home Depot. Uh, and so I ran to Home Depot. It was like I, I had never plumbed anything. I always tell people it was me, YouTube and the Holy Spirit uh, sort of figuring out how this is going to go. Uh, so I'm carrying all this stuff into the house and uh, our neighbor is sitting on his porch and he says, hey, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I've Somebody stole the plumbing out of the house. I got to put it back. And he goes, oh, I did that. Like, great. Do you want to help me put it back? And he says, sure. And so uh, our first friend in the neighborhood was our neighbor, Birdo, uh, who was not helpful uh, in putting plumbing back. I would say he was more of a removal artist than an installation guy. Uh, but he, uh, you know, he was our first guy that we got to, you know, what's the neighborhood like? How long have you been here? Why did you pick this neighborhood? What's the relationship like with the police? Do you know your kids' teachers? What are the schools like? Where are they going to school? So we just get to ask all these questions. What do you like about the neighborhood? You know, we're not focusing on negatives as neighbors and as people who are in this, this community with you. Like there are going to be things that we like and we don't like. So what are the things that you like about being here? And it was hundreds of those conversations. And, you know, for the first year and a half, I said, we don't sit inside. Uh, we're outside. If you are, have free time, if you're reading a book, if you're just working on your computer, go sit on the porch and wave at people when they come by. We did a, 
a 24-hour traffic assessment, and we realized that that uh, the same number of people walk in front of our house at one o'clock in the afternoon as they do at one o'clock in the morning. That our neighborhood's very nocturnal, and so we're we're figuring that out. And so, just a lot of these things, you know. And there was one time where I was sitting out on the porch, I waved at someone, and they drove down the street a little ways, and then they backed up and they said, "I've heard of you." I said, "You've heard of me?" He says, "You're the white people who wave at people." And I was like, "That's a great reputation." Yes, that's who we are. Uh, and so, but through you know a year and a half, we figured out a couple of things pretty quickly. Pontiac doesn't need another church. Pontiac is 22 square miles. There's 200 churches here. Uh, we don't need another one. Uh, and so, you know, we had a, a number of churches in our area that, that we, you know, really tried to work with and, and really kind of uh, partner with that didn't work out. We can talk more about that later. But, um, you know, we figured that out. Turnover in our neighborhood is every five months. It's a whole new neighborhood every five months. We bought our house in August. Everybody goes inside in October because it gets cold. And by the time everybody comes back outside in April, it's a whole new neighborhood. So traction and long-term relationships and things like that are going to be really difficult, but it helped us become the oldest people in the neighborhood really quickly. It took a year. Uh, and so now we've been there longer than everybody else. And so when somebody's sort of looking to who's setting the tone in the neighborhood, it's us because we've been there for a long time. We've had our influence, we've done whatever. And so those are things we figured out pretty quickly, but no, initially when we realized how many churches there were, a church plant was not part of the plan. All right. So it took you a year and a half and you figured out we don't need to plant a church. <laughs> so what what are you there for? What what's your purpose? Uh, why are you there? What did you decide that you're supposed to do? Uh, so we you know, pretty quickly figured out 40 percent of our neighbors don't have cars. Uh, we're a mile and a half from a grocery store. Uh, life expectancy in our neighborhood is 65 uh, and just you know, eight miles away in downtown Rochester, it's 81 that uh, particularly diet-related and food-related issues are, um, are really cutting lives short in our neighborhood. But there's all these vacant lots. The house or the city has started knocking down all these houses. Uh, and so, you know, there are a ton of vacant lots within uh, just a couple of blocks of our house. We had one right next door to our house. Uh, we went to uh, the treasurer's office, who's the holder and the keeper of all of the vacant lots. And we just asked how much a vacant lot was because I, I expected them to give me some number that have to go fundraise and come back and buy the lot next to our house. And Laura, uh, who I am still very uh, close with, she says, well, we don't sell a lot of vacant lots. What do you want to use it for? And I said, I think we're going to build a garden. And she says, how about $10? And I said, I, I think I have $80. And so I, we bought eight vacant lots around our neighborhood. And, uh, and we just, you know, started planting gardens and a lot of, you know, in talking to our neighbors, we found out all the, not I don't know how to grow anything. I grew up in Arkansas. So like, but I grew up farm adjacent. I didn't grow up on farms. And so I'd never grown anything, but if you're in a city like Flint, Pontiac, Detroit, Ypsilanti, Mount Clemens, and you're black, you're one or two generations out of the South. And so, uh, a lot of our neighbors said, oh, I spent summers with my aunts, cousins, uncles, grandparents down South. And they had a farm or they had a you know, small garden or whatever. And so all the knowledge we needed for a garden was already in our neighborhood. And so we just needed to leverage the resources, build some yeah. garden beds, bring in some good dirt. And we, we told people, we said, we can grow whatever you want. You just have to teach somebody else how to grow it. And, uh, and they said, okay, sounds good. And so, you know, our first gardeners uh, in our garden were our neighbors uh, and they were mentoring each other and growing stuff together. That first year we grew 500 pounds of food. The next year we grew 1200 uh, and so when we had that much food, we start putting it in bags and then taking it to apartment buildings and just hanging it on all the doorknobs in the apartment buildings. And so a lot of times we were feeding people before we ever actually met them, which was really cool. Uh, then we did 2,500 pounds. And now we have this, you know, we, we're going to do 8,000 pounds this year. Uh, we have a network of uh, farm stands that we now do all over the city in neighborhoods a lot like ours that don't have access to food. Uh, we opened a vegetable store that we have hired. Uh, people from our neighborhood who are our staff at the vegetable store. Uh, so really we started with food and that sort of led to the relationships that eventually led to the church plant that we have now. Cool. That's uh, that is fascinating. And I really don't even necessarily want to interrupt this amazing uh, monologue and the story you're telling. One of the things uh, Steve, I notice about Cole is he's a great storyteller. 
He has the ability to really bring us into this story. And for those of you that are just joining this uh, webinar moment, uh, welcome to this exponential moment with Steve Pike uh, in the next wave uh, culture, because we are now in this moment today, we are into um, this episode is all about recalibrating your timeline, your launching timeline from the traditional launch to rather to an emerging culture. How does something emerge rather than launch? And Cole's story is clearly showing us, um, telling us a story of what it looks like for something to emerge. Uh, Cole, what I'm hearing in this, and maybe this is something I picked up from Tim Keller at a distance. Uh, Tim Keller at one point said, well, you're moving into a city or a neighborhood like, like yours. And I've seen this in your story. First, you move in and you live among the people. And in fact, this is, there's an alliteration here, folks, heads up. And as you're living among the people, you are listening, listening well, you are asking questions, listening, you're learning, learning well. And one of the things I've just seen you describe is that you linked with other organizations. The city, where does it hurt? How can I help? Just the neighbors, you were figuring out what are the local organizations that you can link with. And long before anything you would say that we could launch, before anything launch-worthy in the traditional sense would appear, living, listening, learning, linking, launching. A great alliteration from Tim Keller and from you, Cole. Hey, those of you that are listening into this and watching uh, this webinar, uh, thank you for your questions in the chat. Feel free to hit that chat button and add your question. And we have, Cole, a question from Paul who wants to know, what were you doing during that first year? Did you have a marketplace job as you were learning the area? Ah, yes. Uh, one day when, when I write the book, uh, there will be a whole chapter about the horrible, horrible jobs that we had because uh, this is what we moved here for. This is what we were doing. And so uh, in, any vocation that we were after had to fit around kind of what we were trying to do here. And so, man, Dylan, when he moved here, he had, uh, if you've watched Parks and Rec, he, he said it was a door-to-door -door marketing uh, company, a lot like, uh, that felt a lot like Entertainment 720 uh, that Tom Haverford ran, you know, they'd be like, okay, great. here's what we're selling door to door today. And like all the lights would go out and then like lights would start swirling all over the place. And they'd be like, Oh, oh let's sell that, whatever. You know? And just like, that was a horrible job. I worked at Panera bread. Uh, that was a horrible job. I, you know, I walked in they're like, you know, well, tell us what you're good at. And I was like, I love people and like love talking to people and hanging out. And just like, you know, that's, that's definitely what I enjoy doing. They're like, great. You look like you would be great by yourself over here by the giant wall of bread. Uh, and so I, I did that job. I worked at Pier One selling furniture to overcaffeinated middle-aged moms. Uh, I did I did all the all the the worst jobs, um, and you know enjoyed them and had fun and, and made friends along the way. And when I think of those jobs, it's sort of how awful some of them were. The you know that that Panera Bread that I worked at that was horrible. Yeah, you know, that just because it's an awful job and not what you're there to do does not give you an excuse to be an awful person. Uh, and it helps you along the way. Like, you know, that Panera bread is still donating bread to Micah six that we pass on to our neighbors. And, you know, some of the people I met at pier one and worked with at pier one became diehard volunteers out here with what we're doing. And, uh, and I don't, I don't know that there's anything redeeming about Dylan's job, uh, but, uh, but that was, you know, it was a lot of, a lot of really miserable jobs until we could get this thing up and going. Uh, and shout out, um, you know, from here to heaven, uh, one of our dear friends in the very beginning, Carrie Lozier owned a music studio and she, she, you know, uh, in, uh, instrumental training, uh, teaching kids how to play piano, not recording. That would have been a lot cooler, but different. Um, but Carrie knew about Micah Six, knew what, what, uh, what we were trying to do, what we were trying to accomplish here. And she says, I don't really need a business manager at the store. I kind of do all that and we're doing just fine. Uh, but I really like Micah six and I really like what you're trying to do. So I, you know, if you will be our business manager part-time, I'll hire you. I'll pay you this much so that, so that you can be working on Micah six also. And Micah six probably does not happen. And Micah six community does not happen or make that turn in the road. If it wasn't for Carrie Lozier, mm -hmm. uh, it really, you know, was incredibly flexible. Like there were days where I was watching, you know, somebody's kid in the neighborhood and they didn't show up when they said they were going to show up. And I just said, okay, like, 
you're coming to work with me. And like Carrie was fine with that. And there would be emergencies in the neighborhood that I had to run out the door for to go manage. And, you know, Carrie was incredibly understanding of that. But yeah, we are not here without someone who goes, I see what you're trying to do. Uh, and, and I want to hire you so that you can do what you're, what you're really seeking after and what you're passionate about. And that was really huge for us. Incredibly grateful for Carrie. Your, your story has so many, if, if anybody's read next wave or familiar with the, the shifts, you know, you're, you're talking about another one of the shifts, uh, which is the funding shift. You know, the idea that a church can be sustained by tithes and offerings alone is just, it's just going to become a, a relic uh, in, in the years to come everywhere, but especially in places like Pontiac. I mean, that's a reality right now. And you, you've just described some of the ways that you activated other ways of, of, of allowing you, you yourself to be there. In fact, I recently talked with our friend, Sean Banesh, who's, uh, if you haven't read any of this stuff, it's definitely worth checking out. It talks about uh, ministry in cities. But one of the things he, he's really zeroing in on is making the planter sustainable is the first stage of making the church sustainable. Um, anyway, so it's the love. Thanks for any, any other idea or any, any other pieces of that story of how you're sustaining will be really helpful as we go along. But I also, I just want to pause a second and just keep everybody. So 2012, you arrived there a year and a half. You're, you actually decided we're not going to plant a church. And so you, but you did start a community garden um, and, you know, met a really practical need. And many people would say, okay, man, well done. Cool. You've started this community garden. You figured out a way to stay there. You know, Jesus is being honored through your faithfulness, but somehow you guys decided, wait, maybe we do need uh, to start a church. Talk, talk to us about how that happened. So in, in our neighborhood, uh, we talked about that, just a ton of vacant houses and sort of half fallen down apartments that had a fire in them five years ago, but the building hasn't been demolished yet, that sort of thing. And so we, um, we, you know, we had a lot of homeless friends, especially as we were doing the gardens and we're outside and we're kind of getting to know people. We had a lot of homeless friends uh, in the neighborhood who just kind of started hanging out. Uh, and we very early on said, you know, we're living in our house with an open door. We don't lock the door. Uh, and we have, uh, homeless friends who are in and out. We said, you know, you can take a shower, you can cook food, you can watch TV, you can charge your phone, you, whatever you need to do, you can do here at the house. And so people are in and out all the time. At any given time, we probably had six or seven homeless folks just hanging around the house, which was great. Um, and as you're hanging out with your friends, like you do, you end up having spiritual conversations and kind of, you know, where do you, you know our neighbors are intensely spiritual, but they're not terribly uh, church driven people. And so kind of, as we were kind of coming down on that and having conversations about that and really zeroing in on getting to know more about that, it, the prevailing opinion and feeling was we're not welcome. And, you know, I come from rural church where we, you know, the, the big conversation, especially in colleges was like, how do we make our churches more welcoming? Like that's the problem is that maybe we're not, we're not so welcoming. So how do we get more welcoming? Uh, and so, you know, we started having conversations with all the churches within walking distance of our house basically and said, Hey, uh, you know, we've got this group of people uh, and, you know, we're really trying to get them plugged into some sort of church community. Uh, is this, is this a safe place for them to come? And, and this is not a, I think this is a question we should be asking more for, you know, friends of ours who are in the LGBTQ community or friends of ours who are maybe a minority in a, in a community or, you know, is this going to be a place where they are welcome, wanted and comfortable? Uh, and we got hard nose uh, from these congregations going, okay, so you're asking if we would like an influx of mostly homeless. A lot of them have unaddressed psychiatric issues. A lot of them are in addiction. Um, you're asking if we, we want a large influx of those people no, no, do not, do not bring them here. You know, sex offenders, one out of uh, six of my neighbors uh, is a sex offender uh, on, of some level. You know, do we want an influx of those people? No. Uh, and we try, we're like, okay, well, what if, you know, we, what if we did like a, you know, 12 o'clock, like church gets out. What if we did something at one and then we clean the church building afterward? Like we really tried uh, and the, the prevailing response was no. Uh, 
And so that's kind of when it became clear if, if we wanted to have some sort of spiritual gathering with this group of people that we've really been put amongst and that we are sort of serving both relationally and materially and, and in other ways, like we're going to have to do it ourselves. And that started on a Thursday night. We just called it pizza and Bible study. We got little Caesars pizza, uh, you know, shout out to little Caesars Detroit made. Uh, and uh, so we just started uh, with Bible study. And then that grew. And then we, you know, we started talking about, do we want to do something on a Sunday? We had just bought a building that we were getting ready to turn into a vegetable store. And so we said, we have this building, there's no heat, no water, no electricity. Uh, you know, the, the only light fixture that would be there is just a bare wire hanging from the ceiling that we're pretty sure is live. Uh, but can we make this work? I think we can make this work. You know, it's, it's not worse than what our friends are sleeping in and living in. Uh, and so uh, we Easter of... I think Easter of 15, uh, we said, okay, we're going to start on a Sunday, which in terms of a launch, uh, not great, uh, because if there's one day you actually do go to church, it's Easter, and you usually get, like, you usually have your church that you go to. So there was no one there at nine o'clock on that Sunday morning. Um, then we go a couple more weeks, no one shows up. Everyone's still coming to Thursday, and we're going, hey, there's also Sunday, and no one cares. Uh, so nine, then we said, well, maybe it's too early. 10, 11, one, start getting two or three people at one o'clock, uh, we pivot to, we just go, okay, evening, six o'clock. And we get three or four people there and we're like, okay, maybe Sunday isn't our jam. Like maybe we're just not doing this. Um, and then something happened where um, Sam and Leah were a couple, a uh, heroin addict lesbian couple who lived in a vacant house down the street. Uh, they would, uh, they first came over to charge phones and then they started hanging out. Then they would come every Tuesday night to watch The Walking Dead. Uh, so Tuesday night was dead night. Um, and then, you know, one time they both showed up bruised from a, a fight that they had had where they beat each other up. And then we, you know, we said, well, if, if it's ever getting to that point, you need someone else just to be present, feel free to come down here. And, you know, I don't know what we were thinking we were going to do other than just be a presence in the room. Uh, and then, you know, they would have fight night in our living room where they would just, you know, they would fight over normal couple stuff and like, where are we buying our heroin from? And why are you letting that guy stay with us? And what did you do with our bridge card? Which is our food stamps there in Michigan. Uh, and so we, uh, you know, but one day Sam comes down the street and says, hey, Leah uh, hasn't moved in two days. Mm. So that's not great. Uh, so went down there and Leah's laying on their only piece of furniture, which is a twin size mattress in the middle of a room, you know, with uh, no, no, you know, no utilities or anything. And she is probably the color of the wall behind Dan, uh, just this awful gray color, um, but alive. Uh, and we threw her in the car and in Pontiac, we have three hospitals. Uh, one you go to, if you get stabbed or shot, one you go to, if you need a surgery and one you don't go to. Uh, and so we're driving to stabbed or shot hospital. Uh, and we get there and she goes upstairs really quickly. And, um, the doctor comes down a couple hours later and she, he says, yeah, she had an infection in her bloodstream from her injection site. Uh, she did almost die. If you want to organize an intervention, this is the time to do it. Uh, so I got her phone uh, and I called in her, her phone. Somebody listed as daddy, which you never know what you're going to get. Uh, and uh, her dad answers. Uh, he's the assistant superintendent of schools in a pretty nearby community. Very normal family. Uh, and he says, this is probably, I said, you know, I think we're going to organize a conversation to try and get her into treatment. Would, would you come down for that? And he says, this is probably really scary because it's the first time you saw it. But um, after four or five times, you really get over it. I'm not coming. Mm. And uh, so we talked to her about getting into treatment. She didn't go. Um, went right back to using. Uh, and what we didn't know is that she would go and hang out with her friends and, and use and, you know, party and drink and do drugs and whatever. Uh, and she'd say, but I can't get too messed up because I've got church tomorrow. And they would say, you go to church and said, I, I go to church. So, well, your pastors must not know what you're doing right now. And she said, no, if anybody knows my life, it's Coleman and Stillen. And then they started saying, well, I'm a sex offender. Is that a place that I can go? Um, I'm homeless. Is that a place I can go? Or I've had this or done this. Is that a place I can go? And the answer was yes. And so we didn't know that that was going on, but at the same time, you know, that church became the gathering on Sunday night for most of Leah's friends. Um, and a lot of them are dead now. Uh, a lot of them have 
moved on. Some of them have gotten clean, uh, but that really our first growth as a congregation came from uh, the folks that Leah was using with um, in her free time. And, and then they would all show up on Sunday. Wow. So that's how our church started. And it's weird, uh, you know, uh, addicts smoke a lot. And so, you know, we, Dylan gets in, he's like, you know, put up the five minute countdown. Everybody goes outside, smokes a cigarette, comes back in. We sing three songs that sound horrible. Uh, and then, you know, he's like, Hey, see, you know, talk to somebody you haven't seen in a while. Everybody goes outside, smokes again. We call it nicotine fellowship. Uh, then everybody comes back in, everybody can deal with about 10 minutes before they start getting like antsy again. And, and that's church and it's weird and it's fun and it's cool, but people are learning and growing and experiencing Jesus in ways they haven't before. And it's, um, it's been a cool ride and we've been doing it. And so church launched in 2015. So we're coming up on degree what our seventh year it's pretty wild cool it is wild it is wild and uh and thank you for noting that the color of my walls are an awful gray that that is that is a category awful gray the so. talent is uh is heroin sepsis gray <laughs> in, thank you from sherman williams we'll, we'll talk offline about maybe what color <laughs> replacement uh, I, I should be considering <laughs> My wife has all sorts of opinions on room colors. I, I look forward. I look forward to that conversation. Hey, we have questions uh, that are being offered by the folks that are participating in this Love webinar, it. and we have a question from Alan. Uh, and it's a church planting funding kind of a question. And and both Cole and Steve, I think you're going to have something to say to this. Here's the question: Most church planting networks that provide funding also outline a rigid timeline. For sustainability, are there any planting networks that you're aware of that have embraced that are working with this idea of recalibrating the timeline? It's a good question. What do you think, gentlemen? I so I'll I'll just say my experience. We we planted outside of a network. Uh, we went on our own. Um, the what I would say is the social work funds our work. I mean, our, our congregation is never going to be able to support a minister. Um, and so we get grant funding for the gardens. We get grant funding for a lot of the food programs we run. We get grant funding for a lot of the kids programs that we're running now. Um, that's what pays our staff, uh, is, uh, is the neighborhood support work that we do. Uh, and so that, you know, and the relationships that we build through that is what brings people into our church. We don't have a paid evangelist. We don't have a, anything like that. What, what we have is, uh, an organization that's doing support work in our neighborhood. And, and then that enables us to do the ministry work we do. Yeah. Yeah. And thanks Cole. And, and yeah, you, you're what, again, what you're describing is a sort of the emerging alternative funding mechanism for the future church. I believe, I think every church everywhere is going to have to be more creative. I think that the, um, the, the tithe and offering, go-to default way of funding the church is going to become less and less common. And what you guys are doing is sort of pioneer, pioneering your way forward. And it's really a combination. I mean, in your startup phase, you were doing a lot of co-vocational, we call it co-vocational kind of work. Uh, but that, that one illustration, you, you had a business friend who basically gave you a job that she understood she's her perhaps uh, she told you up front, Hey, I don't really necessarily need somebody doing this job, but I want to make sure you're still here to be able to do what you're doing. And and so that's what we would call a for-profit partnership where, where a for-profit organization enables the church planter or the church leader to be sustainable. So anyway, answering the question that the, that the listener asked or the viewer asked about, are there any organizations that are, aware of the need to make the shift uh, in thinking about timeline. I think the answer to that is they are moving. Uh, I think every organization that I'm, in, I'm working with right now is recognizing the need for that um, and are, are trying to think about how they're going to accommodate that. I don't, I, I'm not aware of a particular organization that I would say, yeah, these guys have, have got it down, go with them. Um, Cole probably took the only option that he felt like was available to him at that point. I think 
if somebody is, is the coal of today, who's a young college person, I would urge you to, to shop around a little bit and ask questions up front and, and find out the, the willingness of an organization to work with you. Because I, I know many organizations that are willing. They don't know how necessarily, but they're willing to work with somebody so that they're just not completely out there on, on their own, hanging, hanging out uh, with, without any, um, any, anybody cheering them on. Um, and that's a really hard way to do it. And, you know, by God's grace, Cole and his team, and really it is by God's grace <laughs> that Cole and his team are, are still, uh, you know, standing and that, and that this has become a sustainable uh, deal. But I just encourage you um, to, you know, have a conversation and, and just be upfront and say, look, we, we're thinking about doing this. We know that the traditional model is not going to work. So if you want to give us, you know, 20,000, 30,000, 50,000, whatever, we're not going to be able to quickly turn that around and, and you celebrate the ROI on that. Um, be upfront. And what I'm, again, what I'm finding is people are just an increasing number of leaders are recognizing that there's a need for organizations to pivot how they think about funding. So, um, so there's not a simple answer to that, but hey, if anybody knows, I mean, even the folks at Exponential, you may know of an organization that is um, helpful, uh, that is that is actually built for supporting people like Cole and his team. Um, man, put it in the notes. Let us know about it. Love to hear about that. So, Dan, I think we had, I think I saw another question came in. Is that true? We certainly do from Obed. Do you have ways of helping people transition out of things like homelessness and addiction or Cole is your main focus relationships and faith life transformation uh Obed thank you for that question we always get it the other way around which is uh well it sounds like you're doing a lot to help people get out of addiction but you know doesn't sound like you're doing much for people's souls which I just go like Okay. Uh, so we, we always, we struggle and we, the language we use here is, is we struggle often uh, with uh, sort of the, the balance between what we call presence and progress, uh, which is, you know, this neighborhood and so much of our work requires just a faithful presence, a faith presence here that is, you know, here for whatever I can, sit and listen to you vent. I can sort of help you think through things. I'm there with you through whatever you need. Uh, I'm here to celebrate. I'm here to mourn. I'm here. Like I'm a consistent and faithful presence here. Uh, and then also wanting progress. We want the neighborhood to get better. We want lives to get better. We want life transformation. We want people to get out of addiction. Uh, and so we, we very much see ourselves in both lanes. Um, it is, very the what, where frustration comes and I think where burnout comes for us especially is uh, being a presence is easy. I can sit and listen to you. I can I can sit and cry with you. I'm I am gifted in those things. Um, but the moment that sort of our, our relationship moves into more of a progress state where some of it is on you, you know, like actually going to treatment, actually going to that job that we set you up with actually showing up at this thing on time actually getting your kids up to make sure that they go to tutoring or go to kids camp like when we're when we're working in that progress lane uh it's a lot more frustrating it gets a lot harder um when we are we are seeking to just be a presence we're really good at that um but yeah the minute it becomes sort of a partnership and both of us are having to work on it uh it's it's hard it, it gets a lot harder yeah, but without presence, there is no progress. I mean, if you're not there, I mean, that's 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 part of why this is so important. And I think that's something, you know, we the church has become so oriented around, you know, some kind of metric that gives us a way to say, yeah, we're winning, that um, we fail to recognize that, you know, there's a another another P word. I guess will be alliterative here is process. There's a process that the Holy Spirit is taking people through. And we don't have, we're not privy to that, their timeline, but sometimes you have people that, you know, you're, you're present with them and you're, you're praying for progress and maybe you're seeing incremental moves, but the, there, there's a process going on that, that God is orchestrating that you can't see. And you just, again, being faithful, being present 
and um, you know, working, leaning toward progress uh, is so important. So sounds like you, you guys are still figuring that out. Um, speaking of, so you, you, you know, again, I, I, I just want to remind, we're, we're talking about the timeline here and, you know, if I, if I've got it right, I think, you know, the, the earliest time in your life that you started even moving in this direction would have been when you decided to go to Bible college which was like three years before you ended up moving to Pontiac. So, so we're, we're talking to, it's 2021 right now. So about 12 years ago is when the seed of this started and you've, you've sort of given us a little bit about the middle of the story. I think we have a picture of what, what it, it's looked like in the middle, but here you are now in 2021. And why don't you just give us a snapshot of what everything looks, you, you got, you had, you started the vegetable store back in the day. Um, the church is, is, has become part of the mix. Where are you guys at now? What's the cre- present current status, status of MICA community, MICA 6 community? Sure. Uh, so we are, um, goodness, I have, Eight, eight people on our team. Uh, we have 12 paid employees as an organization. Uh, we have a rule that everybody who works for the organization has to live in our census tract. So uh, we are hiring people who are hyper-local. Uh, the next big thing and the, the next big thing that we're working toward right now is uh, in the middle of our neighborhood for since 2008 uh, has been a vacant elementary school. Uh, we came into possession of that building a couple of years ago and we are getting ready uh, to renovate that building and turn it into a community center. So that is a $17 million renovation. Uh, we're about half fundraised right now. That process really started earlier this year. Uh, we're doing all of our environmental remediation this fall, and we, uh, we, start, a, uh, we start construction in January, uh, and we have 100% of our space committed already. So that is six Head Start classrooms. That's a WIC office. That's uh, uh, two different arts programs. Uh, we have an instrumental uh, accent. Pontiac has taken over a lot of the uh, music education in Pontiac Public Schools. We have a dance uh, group that's moving in that blends urban and suburban kids uh, in a dance program. Sprout is going to move. Our vegetable store is going to move into that building. The Police Athletic League is coming in to do basketball, volleyball, and martial arts in that building. Uh, and so we are very quickly scaling um, and expanding and and really like every, you know, but the whole process again was, we know we want to build a community center. So we went out and we talked to 300 people in our neighborhood. We threw out any survey we got from anybody that lived further than a mile from our building. And we said, you know, if we turn this into a community center, what do you want to see in it? And it was only when we had that information from our neighbors, when we sat, talked, listened, figured out what we, what they wanted, that we then approached those organizations that fit into that mold and said, our neighbors are asking for this. Can you come in and, uh, and supply that? Or can you come in and fill that void or fill that goal? Uh, and so this is an absolutely neighborhood-driven community center project that is uh, coming in less than two years. Cole, that's fascinating. And in a separate conversation, which may end up having to be one-on-one, unfortunately, I want to dive into uh, how one does connect with the local community, with the neighborhood, with the truly local organizations, and how you prioritize, uh, where does it hurt and how can we help? Because that's a fascinating uh, part of this story. We do have another question. Thank you for these questions. They're all fascinating from Liz. Have you seen any of the people in your community go through transformation and become raised up to be a church leader working alongside you? Sure. So I'll tell you about Cheryl and I'll tell you about Tanya. So when we met Tanya, Tanya was homeless. She was squatting in a vacant house. She, um, she had been living with a boyfriend who had a crack addiction. Uh, We helped them slowly save up $700 uh, to be able to afford a first month's rent in an apartment. And he stole it and went and spent it all on drugs. And so when we met Tanya, we're, we're sort of slowly walking through this process with her and, you know, getting her into first reliable housing. Uh, eventually, she became one of our employees at Sprout. Uh, and Tanya is this phenomenal that, that, you know, the skill that she kept from us for so long, a phenomenal writer mm-hmm. and writes beautiful poetry and amazing prayers and things so much. 
uh, and um, is just so, so good at that. And so she's actually become a mentor to a couple of other girls in our congregation who have left similar situations. I'm thinking like Brandy, who had her kids taken away. And I'm thinking of, uh, you know, Danielle, who uh, always is in flux on whether or not she believes in taking her psychiatric meds and things like that. And Tanya is just like our church mom who just wraps all those people up and has really made it her mission to take care of those folks. Uh, and then you have Cheryl. Cheryl, you know, long life of addiction, in and out of prison several times. Uh, but when she came to our church, she, huh, this is funny, uh, she came to our church because I came to Micah 6 community to do court-ordered community service. Uh, at one point, we did a census of our church and realized that 40% of the people who were there had come to us initially through court-ordered community service, uh, which I don't know any other church that has half their people were criminal on some, <laughs> of some sort. Uh, and so they, uh, so she came to us and she says, I want to start an AA group uh, that sort of, you know, people from our church can go to, but then there are also going to be people who never set a foot in, in church. Uh, and so they started uh, putting that together and, and she runs this AA group that's, you know, on a Sunday sometimes has more people at it than church actually does. Uh, and she's just been a rock star in ministry and in the recovery community in our neighborhood, especially. And, and that's a platform that we've been able to, to put her on in order to really reach out and love on more people. Cole, thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Each question has resulted uh, in yet another story, another chapter emerging. Mm -hmm. uh, Stephen Pike, I recommend that we somehow have Cole come back and continue to share this story. Uh, with this uh, growing audience that we have in, in this webinar. Uh, Steve, we're, we're running out of time. We're about to pivot to a conclusion. Do you have any concluding um, or remarks, Steve, you want to share right now? Well, I, yeah, I just want to concur with you, Dan. I, I, we got to figure out a way. So we'll, we'll ask the folks at Exponential, hey, can we uh, do another season maybe around uh, stuff like that? Who knows? You know, so because uh, that's what this next wave thing is all about is figuring out what the future church looks like. And I think we've all seen a taste of what that can be. Um, and so, yeah, I, I thank you. Thank you, Cole, for your time today. Uh, and we're so excited about what God's doing through you. I want to just very quickly, I just want to pray for you and your family. Uh, and you're married. You have a kid now. Um, and I just want to pray that, that God will um, just just be with you guys in this next phase of the journey. So, Lord, thank you so much for Cole and his family, um, for the team that you've put around him, for the amazing story of going from some kids in their college dorm uh, sneaking farm animals out to host a neighborhood party to uh, literally being part of, of your work in a neighborhood, transforming the lives of hundreds of people. And we just thank you for it and just bless them as they continue to follow you wherever you lead, meet every need according to your riches and glory, protect them from getting um, just uh, consumed by the, the energy and, and the efforts that, that they have to put forth to um, be with you on this mission. God, make your word be true that, that you will uh, give them everything they need uh, in, in not only financial sustenance, but, but give them rest, give them peace. And we thank you for it in Jesus name. Amen. Dan, go ahead and wrap it up. Yeah, Steve, thank you. And wow, Cole, thank you so much. Hey, for those of us that are on this webinar, I know that many of us right now are wanting to continue the conversation with Cole. And so you will find in the notes for this webinar, a link to Cole and a link to Micah 6 so that you can take the next steps because truly Jesus have been, is nudging some of us on this webinar uh, to uh, contact Cole and see what's going on. And as we know in this webinar, this is all based on 12 shifts that are emerging in North America, 12 waves, if you will, for the future that Steve Pike has uh, taken the time to actually taken the effort and time to put together both in a book called Next Wave. I'm on the West Coast, the sun is coming up, and I never think that through when I'm on a Zoom call that I'm going to have to be dealing with a sunrise on the West Coast. And also uh, what I have found really personally helpful is that there's a next wave cohort, an actual community of folks that are learning these 12 shifts, sharing their own stories and journeys like Cole, and together leaning into the future, if you will, surfing this next wave together. And you'll find links also for that in the notes. And I heartily recommend both the cohort 
and the book to you. And Steve, Cole, next time we get together in two weeks for this webinar, we will be discussing one of those shifts, one of those ways, which is the metrics, what we count, are changing. We're refreshing the networks, uh, the, excuse me, the metrics, and we're going to be interviewing and hearing from a church planter in Berkeley, California, downtown Berkeley, California, the center of California university culture, who is refreshing these metrics in real time. I'm fascinated by that conversation. I'll be here in two weeks. Thank you all of us for being part of this webinar and for surfing the next wave together. Have a great week.